In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody is having a beautiful morning. I hope that you get to wake up next to someone you love, and I hope that you're surrounded by sunshine and birds singing, and I hope that you have something to look forward to, something to do, and someone to love. i got a great guest for you today. i got a great show. Nin Dougal, a BA Honors graduate in psychology with over five years of research experience and two years in the mental health field. He's an individual who is passionate about mental health, well-being, and has recently begun to explore the therapeutic potential of psychedelic substances and their integration into mainstream healthcare. He's also the recipient of multiple scholarships, such as the President's Scholarship, as well as the Dr. Douglas Earl Alcorn Scholarship. He's studied abnormal psychology. He has navigated his way around some interesting corporate structures that we were beginning to talk about. Min, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing awesome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks, George. Yeah, the pleasure's all mine. When As we were getting started, I, I had mentioned to you, and I want to mention to the audience, I, I spend a lot of time interviewing a lot of really interesting people, of which I think you're one, but you represent sort of a different demographic for me, sort of a younger group coming up. And the world, through your eyes, is probably a lot different than it has been through my eyes or through the eyes of some of the people that I have spoken with. And so I want to kind of begin to touch on that a little bit. And I thought maybe the best way to do that was just to kind of open it up to you. And maybe you could tell us a bit of an origin story. Like how did you get involved in psychology and mental health and well-being, and what, what led you to where you are today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's so funny. I, as I've been starting a new position and stuff, I've been describing myself to people and for some reason I really struggle sometimes to, to give good definitions of who I think I am, but I like the origin story. So I grew up in the very West coast of Canada, the West, um, most Southern part of Canada on, on Vancouver Island. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. It's beautiful. But I grew up in this small little town uh, called Souk. I think there's about 12,000 people there growing up. And it's kind of got like a Christian underlie to it. And 
very, it would it'd be very similar in, to kind of like uh, Washington or Oregon in terms of the feel and stuff. And so for me growing up, I think one of the most significant life events that happened to me would be my parents got a divorce when they were when I was eight. Mm. And of course, like any kid of that age, I think I started blaming myself. You know, at some level, I really thought that I had to do with it. I can remember I had this one memory of my parents were arguing in the in the kitchen and I and I came in and I just remember running up and hugging both of them and being like, are you guys getting a divorce? <laughs> and of course they said no, but right. they did end up getting a divorce. But <laughs> why I think that was like a really important life event for me is because it, I think it started, it sparked in me some sort of understanding that there was like a relationship between them that didn't work well you know like and as a I don't I'm not sure how old I would have been at the time I think eight or ten years old I was in grade four uh it was my first understanding like uh, on a deeper deeper way of like what it meant to have relationships with people and what kind of goes into that and I think that's that kind of helped me start seeing the world more in that way, in a very relational way and understanding connections between people. And I slowly started falling into this role in my friend groups as the person that people would come to to talk to. And I think it was grade eight, so maybe 12 or 13, 14, something like that. Like I knew I wanted to be a psychologist. I was so dead set on it because, <laughs> and like every kid does at that age, um, I was like, I'm good at talking to people, <laughs> right? And so fast forward into high school, I played hockey and baseball. Like I, I probably would have been like the jock in the jock kind of group. Um, and to be honest, um, coming from from a small town who played hockey, which typically is a, quite a toxic sport, I developed a lot of toxic traits, a lot of toxic masculinity, a lot of misogyny, a lot of um, kind of like racist undertones from just the environment that I was in. And it wasn't until I was in grade 12, I took a social justice course and I really started to understand like, wow, like I have all of these societal structures that have been imprinted on me in such a way that I now see the world in this biased way. And I go to university and and started taking, you know, I, I took psych, of course, but I was taking a lot of sociology as well and philosophy. And that's when I really started to unpack a lot of these harmful ways of being in the world. And simultaneously, this is when I started, I started using a lot of substance at this age, you know, the typical mm. first year university student sure. drinking a lot, using, I started using MDMA, psilocybin. Um, which is also kind of what started kicks kickstarting me into more of the psychedelics realm. Sure. While all this is happening, I think my parents' divorce had a, a very strong imprint on me in terms of how I was able to have relationships in the world, particularly with women or romantic partners, I should say. And what ended up happening is I fell into these patterns of unhealthy toxic relationships where I would hyper fixate on the relationship it was really unhealthy on and off so I think we all we've all kind of been through that to some degree or most of us I should say and 
what all the reason why I'm saying all of this is because all these different factors, what kept happening is it all came back to me and how I was being in the world, how I was behaving. I started really understanding how my actions, my ingrained beliefs, my biases were causing me, resulting in me acting, putting myself out there in a certain way, which was then drawing certain things to me. And then we get into second year, just kind of, I decided I needed to stop using substances. I wanted to really, I really wanted to, to put my foot down. And that's when I got into research. I started in a social sciences, a social psychology lab doing, it was actually so cool. It was called the Ikea study. Nice. And yeah. And so how it worked is we'd bring in a couple and then they would be randomly assigned to one of two groups. It was either um, a very difficult Ikea bunk bed or a very easy Ikea bunk bed. And we put them in a room with cameras and we just give them the instructions and tell them to build these bunk beds. And it was really interesting to see how different couples took different roles when building the bunk bed and depending on if it was like what genders they were how much i think we ended up terming it kind of like heterogeneity um oh i can't think of the word right now um heteronormativity and so if you had like a very heteronormative couple you know you see the the male would step up a little more and kind of like take the lead but oftentimes if you had like two women for example it was more equally shared or it, it was it was a little, it was really interesting just to see how different couples and different people took different roles and how they communicated but that led me into actually joining a um a, um, a neuroscience lab a neuropsychology lab that studies primarily concussions in like sports related concussions and that's when i started getting deep deep into research and i did research like essentially like 365 days a year for three years following that which was it was awesome that's when i got like a few scholarships i was able to do full-time research on like one of our like larger research projects and that's the lab actually that ended up transitioning into looking at psilocybin for cognition, which is super cool, super cool. But I digress for the moment. <laughs> so third year university, COVID hits. And uh, that changed everything, uh, obviously. Yeah. I mean, we go online. Um, this caused me to have to move in with my partner at the time. And what that did in particular moving in with my partner was it really started highlighting these unhealthy behavioral patterns and unhealthy cycles of unhealthy relationships and this went on uh for until january actually of 2022 is when i finally broke up with her and when we broke up it sent me into a bit of a crisis to be honest like i we had we thought we were going to get married we had this whole plan for our lives which of you know i i yeah. totally understand i'm just some young guy uh we were young but i truly believed it yeah of course and so i remember i broke up with her one night and the next by the next day like she had moved all of her stuff out of the place it was the first time in my life i'd lived alone and i didn't really know what to do but I knew that I was drawn to psychedelics 
And so I decided on a whim to just join a psychedelics, um, a psychedelic, it's called the vital training program. It's like a year long psychedelic therapy program. And through that, I just had this complete spiritual awakening. I started listening to Ram Dass and he just, he changed the way that I understood and, 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 and decided to be in the world more, more with love and, that's when I really started unpacking my ego and, and all the, like in, in such a, like a deep, deep level that that is when I started truly challenging myself in my deeply ingrained ways of being. And it's been, you know, about a year and a half ish now. And the amount of change, positive change. And the, in, in that amount of time it has been, astronomical and it's interesting because i think when i now when i'm talking to people who i haven't seen since before that time it's like i'm a completely different person and that makes me feel really happy it makes me feel like i have i have really gone deep and challenged myself to be a better person in the world and that i think is now starting to translate into the work i do and and now i feel like i've done work on myself enough to the point where i'm able to start looking outwards more and seeing how i can make it use the work that i've done on myself to be able to help other people yeah, that's an awesome story, man. I, I appreciate you sharing that. It's it's always fascinating to me to hear a story of transformation and the courage it takes. And it's it never surprises me that these journeys begin with a, a sort of tragedy of sorts, whether it's a loss of love, it's a breakup of some, of some parents, you know. But just in that story alone, I can see the patterns of 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 failed relationships and like how could you have a a working relationship if the model that you had was broken, you know, like, and then that kind of brings us into this idea of generational trauma. Like your parents probably had a model that was faulty on some level and probably even their parents. And I'm always excited to hear someone who begins to break the chains because when you do that, it's like you stop the process of generational trauma, at least put a halt to it. And, you know, especially before you have kids or before you can really become the, the best version of yourself, you have to do what you did. You have to take a real honest look at yourself and be like, you know what? I got some things I got to work on. And that that's really tough to do, man. It's, it's real easy just to be on autopilot and cruise and blame everybody yeah. else and get this job that other people have and move yourself into this little box that society has made for you. And then you can live a mediocre life forever. You know, <laughs> Totally. And you know what, like what was particularly hard for me, I think too, was I'd always seen myself as a helper. I'd always seen myself as someone mm-hmm. who, who could be there for other people. And part of looking at myself was understanding that like a lot of my patterns were hurtful that I was hurting people, that I wasn't helping people, that I was hurting myself and the people I loved. And what that was, what that meant is it shattered my belief of who I was and who I thought I was and what I wanted to be. And I had to 
And I had to kind of go into that, you know, I had to reinvent how I saw myself in a, and it had to be genuine, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do it for show. Like, it was like, wow, no, like I am being a shitty person. (laughs) Final, not like there's no reasons. There's no excuses. Like I had to like, you know what I mean? Really? I do. And be okay with putting that out there in a way and having people, some people believe that because that's the, that was the truth, you know, that, that was, I think one of the hardest parts for me was really coming to terms with destroying my, my very egocentric kind of thought of what I was and who I was in the world. Yeah. It's, it's a real problem. It's this idea that we're not enough. It's this idea that life has unfolded in a way and we just pretend it's our, on, on some level, we, we blame ourselves and in blaming ourselves, we, we lash out at other people because what, one thing I've learned is that the way you treat yourself is the way you treat other people. And if, if you're happy all day long and you put out this exterior, like you want to help and you probably do, but inside you're resentful like that resentment shows up sometimes and it hurts the people closest to you. Like you, yeah. you hold on to these daggers and it's when they're not looking, you stab, you just knife them, you know? Yeah. And then it's so crazy. Yeah. I got you. Yeah. And you feel horrible about it. What the fuck am I doing? Like, why would I do that? That's so mean. Or, or, yeah. or the worst is when you just look at someone and you can see in their eyes that you hurt them and you're like, yeah, oh man, that was a horrible, horrible thing, George. Why would you do that? And, you know, I'm not sure about you, but one one thing that added to the difficulty that I'm still so like working on every day is I'm so quick to want to fix things. Mm -hmm. Right. Like I see that I hurt someone and I'm like, oh, I want to fix it. I want to fix it. But like, that's not it either. That that makes it worse in a lot of ways, because at least in my experience, um, the people closest to me, they just want to be seen and heard and held. They don't want me to fix anything, you know, and as soon as I try to fix it makes it worse and then I get mad when it doesn't work. And yeah, it's just a, that's part of the cycle. It is. I, one thing that I've noticed about that is when you feel that what you're really saying is I want to fix myself because they have, they have showed you your fault, whether it was something they said, whether it was you are reminded of yourself in an action they did. And that, that thing of, I want to fix that is your brain saying, Hey, I recognize that problem in me. I want to fix me. And you think by fixing them, you'll will, but you won't, you know? Yeah, exactly. And it's just kind of a narcissistic, totally selfish action. Totally. Yeah. But it can be used as a, a really good tool because once you know that you could be like, Oh, I'm weak. Them. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And, yeah and, like, okay. That I gotta, I gotta work on me. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I'm just going to like breathe. I'm going to like center myself yeah. in this moment and just like be present. At least that's what I try yeah. to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's good. Or or make a mental note of whatever it was that like triggered you or whatever it was about that person. Just file that away. If you can, write it down. And then, you know, when you go home yeah. by yourself later, be like, okay, what was it? Okay, do I do this? Do I do it, uh, a variation of this? Is this a symptom of something else? Because I recognize it in that person and it hit me pretty hard. So it's yeah. something I should work on, you know? Uh, you know, that remind that is so well yeah. said. It reminds me, so in my program at one point, I can't remember like the purpose or like why we were doing it, but the, the, the task was, okay, pick one person who in your life that really frustrates you. It could be a parent, it could be a friend, it could be a sibling, whoever it is. And then you pick one person that you really like 
that you feel really like a lot of warmth and love towards. And then for each of them, pick five things that you like and don't like about them. And then look at those reasons and see if you do any of them. And in my experience, I found that I did almost all of those. And particularly, particularly with the person who frustrated me, it, all the things that frustrated me most about them were the things that I do. Yeah. Right. It was the things that I'm not proud of. And so seeing it in someone else, especially someone close to me, I get frustrated. But it's exactly like what you said. It's because I'm frustrated at myself for not for being that way or doing that thing. Yeah. And what a what a great way to change that frustration into gratitude. You know, you're like, oh, hey, thanks for showing me all that stuff, man. And I, you know, and it, yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. crazy, but it's true. It's like the the people that frustrate you the most sometimes present you with the biggest things you need to work on. And if you can look at it from that angle, you can find gratitude there and it kind of erases away that frustration. And it just, Oh, I see, yeah. I see the world speaking to me, you know, and then all of a sudden, just, yeah, you start seeing it everywhere. And, and I, the thing about that exercise too, that I love is you're also supposed to say five things or three things that you really like about that person. And oftentimes it's things that you also do when you realize like, oh, wow, like I might have actually learned that from that person. And that's exactly what you said. It's like kind of flipping it from that frustration to gratitude of like, OK, like we're not perfect. <laughs> There's good <laughs> and bad things about everybody. And that's perfectly OK. Yeah, it's really well said. Those are those are huge lessons to learn. And do you think that maybe if we just take if we stay in that same lane, but we rewind it back to where we got on, do you think that? maybe coming from a broken home forces you to see these things at an earlier age. Definitely. Def definitely. And you know, yeah. I, I, sh I should preface by saying like my parents held an amazing really like friendship sure. afterwards. Like to this day, they still talk and hang out sometimes. Like um, I don't want to give a false sense of like, right. Uh, of like it being like they're fighting and yelling all the time it wasn't pretty in the beginning right. but but i think you're absolutely right i think it's exactly what you said it forced me to start seeing these things and i was also an only child mm. and so i felt like i i had a lot of time alone mm. i had a lot of time yeah. by myself like my parents are both working professionals and especially with two houses now going between the houses and school and like walking home from school and stuff like I was I spent a lot of time alone and I think that added to the the, the idea that I started recognizing that more because I didn't have someone to distract me I didn't I didn't really even have anyone to share the pain with right because I didn't have a sibling I didn't I didn't really have anyone else in my life who understood the situation as well as like I did. Of course, at that age, like you don't, you can't really confide in your parents because like you, A, you feel like it's your fault and B, you're also a little bit mad at them for just yeah. like perceiving them from destroying the home. So I think that definitely caused me to exactly just really go deep, deep into that at a, at probably um, a younger age than I would have other ways, otherwise. Yeah, you know, you can see the line from having these thoughts at a young age that children who have a happy 
home with two parents, they, they're not confronted with these ideas. And then that would explain why later people would want to come to you and be like, Hey, what do you think? Like you had well thought out ideas, at least for your, at least for your age, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Age appropriate. That, yeah. Age appropriate <laughs> that other kids are like, man, how do you know that? And it's like, well, you know, you face some tragedy that they have it and you've been forced to sit alone in silence and think about, okay, is this my fault? What's happening here? What is love? Why don't they love each other? Is it something I did? You know, is it my dad? What did my dad do? You know, my yeah. mom does this one thing that's kind of weird. I don't, you know, like <laughs> you start, you start yeah. your mind starts racing, man. And and then, but all of a sudden, those same patterns that are inquisitive, that are investigative, once you sit alone and you've sat with those thoughts as a pattern, because now you, you're thinking about them all the time. All of a sudden, those patterns become something that you use in research. You know, it, it, it's it's interesting to see how your mind worked at a young age and hear about how the patterns developed and then to see where you are today. Like, I love research. Like now, this mm -hmm. thing that began in your mind is like a giant machine that started like just trying to look for every little thing that could be out there. All of a sudden, that translates into an incredible researcher later in life. You know, it's pretty interesting to think about. Yeah, you know what? I've never thought about it that way before. <laughs> I love that. I, you know, I to be honest, I don't have a lot of memories from being young, but sure. Um, I I definitely agree with you that it changed the way I think, and I, I think more more um, more specifically, it changed the way that I saw the world, mm -hmm. and thus the way that I came to like understand it if that makes sense like Perfect. it definitely it definitely changed the way I, I think and i think it's all related but in very particular i just have these memories of just like like i became acutely aware of like body language like nonverbal. i became acutely aware of the way people spoke and like what that meant and i remember getting like and in mm -hmm. sometimes very unhealthy patterns of being like okay that person said something a little bit off well their body was this way which means they're probably mad and yep. go into these like repetitive thought cycles and then anxiety and then like depression <laughs> yeah yeah, you become a master of words. People like, oh, that guy said that word. But yeah. it's not just the word he said, it's the tone that he used. Yeah. Like, that guy's pissed. Yeah. You don't look like it on the outside, but that guy's going <laughs> to blow up on the inside. Exactly. Or that girl hates that guy and she's still with him. I can see it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know you do. I know you do. I, we're birds of a feather. No. And it's that same, once you learn that, it becomes like a superpower. And when you're a kid, you start wielding it in ways that become really hurtful, but it yeah. gets you all kinds of attention. People are like, how the fuck did you fucking know that? Like, I can see it, man. I can see it. I yeah. know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You know, it's like, it becomes a superpower. But if it you, does. but no one teaches you how to use that. That's something you learn on yourself. And you can look at a lot of people who have navigated their way to the highest ranks of the corporate world or a lot of people that find themselves in the positions of wealth, however you want to define it, whether it's through materialism or whether it's someone like Ram Dass who is you know, wealthy beyond belief, but has given up his material, had given up his material positions. I think it's a skill, the same skill that you and I are talking about is a learned skill that so many people have that are influential. And using to learn that skill, using to learn that tool in a way that can help people versus hurt people, I think is essential. 
And those yeah. of us who have learned that skill or are trying to teach that skill to others, there's a giant, giant responsibility to teach that skill in a way that allows people to, to really harmonize with other people. Because if that skill is wielded in a way that is wrong, all of a sudden you got a psychopath on your hands, right? You have a corporate CEO that's like, these guys are all numbers, man. I need to make my profit. And <laughs> you guys don't understand how important I'm trying to run a business here, man. Like you have that yeah. guy that shows up. Yeah. Or, or like the, uh, sorry, I'm bad with serial killers, yeah. but the Manson family. There you go, man. That's what happens. It's, and, and you know, I think uh, adding to that point, I think like for me too is, um, I was, I always perceived myself, like I always cared about people. Mm -hmm. And so, although yes, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes it was definitely wielded in hurtful ways, sure. albeit not purposely, <laughs> um, but a hundred percent hurtful for me because I cared about people being able to almost like see the world in yeah. terms of like that hyper acuity in terms of language and body language it made me so anxious and mm. that really made it made it difficult for me to be in the world in a lot of ways and I think that's another thing that's not taught either is I mean this skill isn't taught but this the the ability to wield it or to to sit with the feelings right. that I can bring up is also not taught you know, and I think that I could imagine I was lucky enough to 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 like learn some skills and going into psychology naturally, right. I was able to apply those to myself. But I think for I, I feel that maybe for a lot of people out there who really, really struggle with anxiety, they haven't been taught the skills to be able to navigate that kind of very anxiety producing world because they care. You know, yeah. the people who don't care they don't i feel like perhaps they don't get as much of that anxiety and, and the, the pain and the, the pain of human suffering oftentimes but the people who really really care are the ones who i feel maybe get more overwhelmed with that that ability to to see the the social world in such a hyper acute way yeah they're paralyzed by if i do that then this guy's gonna think that and then that and then that like in a way, you're you're living out a set of ideas that are probable, but probably aren't realistic. But they are to you, and they come from having a big heart. They come yeah. from not wanting to offend. They come from, you know, wanting to do the right thing. Like that's yeah. a very compassionate person. And if yeah. you know, I, I think of a society later in life where we see someone who has that anxiety, and instead of labeling it as a stigma, we see. This person would be an incredible nurse. This person would be an incredible doctor, you know, and like yeah. we begin to see these things that we look at as disease as a marker for some sort of superpower they have in a weird sort of way. I love that. <laughs> I've I love the things you're bringing forward. You're, you're helping me see the world in a new way. And I love that so much. Thank you. I, I, I think we think a lot alike and I've, I I find that with so many people that gravitate towards the podcast or that I gravitate towards like, I should really talk to this person. I, I get what they're saying. And mm -hmm. I, th I think there's a lot of people out there and in that have similar backgrounds and feel the same way. And in some mm -hmm. ways, if, if you feel like that, you're, you're called to speak out a little bit and, and maybe you influence somebody, maybe you inspire someone, maybe the research you do begins to build things that other people become attracted to. And, 
yeah, it's a really it's a really beautiful thing to think about this idea of behavior and psychology and metacognition, yeah. like thinking about thinking. And that's kind of where psychedelics come in too. For me, when I was introduced to psychedelics, after having a very similar upbringing and experiencing a lot of the same anxiety or depression and figuring out like, why am I different than everybody? Or, you know, what, what's going on here? How come when I say things, people get offended? You know, I'm just pointing out the obvious, but you learn what's not obvious and people don't like that because you're, you're saying things that are obvious they should have thought about and they get pissed off. They didn't think about them, you know? And, <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, but for psychedelics for me, I remember the first time I was probably like 17 and my friend and I went to like this laser Pink Floyd show. And like, I remember taking like a, we split like an eighth of mushrooms or something. And, <laughs> you know, I remember just having this feeling of like, ah, it makes like everything. I can't tell you the exactly what I was thinking, but the feeling, the residue, the shadow of it was that everything makes sense. There is something connecting all this together. And for a split second, I have what the alcoholics call this moment of clarity. From that point, I was hooked. It was like, I can really think with this. I can really make sense of all these things that were just roadblocks in my life. All of a sudden, those cones were moved. The light was green, and I could just fly down that road. What yeah. was it like the first time you in, you found yourself on a psychedelic experience? Yeah, thank you for sharing. Um, I, I actually have a, a fairly similar story, but it, it's interesting for me. I started more as a psychonaut than I was using psychedelics for nice. like mental health. I love, I loved the idea of changing the way that I saw the world, but not, yeah. not, it wasn't that deep at the time, but what happened to me, the, the moment I love telling the story, it's so funny. <laughs> so one of my friends and I, I, I'm not sure how many mushrooms we took, to be honest, we were probably 17 at the time and right. it, it was late at night. So we just had, let's just go for a walk in our neighborhood. It's, it's a pretty foresty neighborhood. There's lots of of nature we love that kind of stuff and we're, right. we're walking to this forest and there is a house being built and we decided like let's just go inside of it let's just walk around and it was really dark it's really dark there's just the moonlight and we were trying our best to to see because there it had just rained so like the there the the moonlight was sh sh Sorry about that. No worries, no worries. The the moonlight was shining off the water on the ground and it made it seem transparent so you couldn't see where you're walking and my friend was walking in front of me and he was looking so close at the ground and suddenly he just stopped and he just looked up and then how he describes the experience was that his whole life he's been looking going like this and when he just took a second to just look up he all of a sudden could see everything and it was such a small moment but i think what it represented was the idea that we can get, and this goes back to like me and my uh, harmful patterns of being in the world is we get so stuck, so stuck. And then for me, what psychedelics really helped was just, it helps, helps me kind of remove or step away, step behind all those patterns and see from like a, a third person perspective or from, from an objective outside perspective of like, oh, wow, I see myself acting that way like witnessing being a witness to yourself acting certain ways and that i think as i've really started getting into psychedelics that's what their meaning is to me is i can step back and and 
just be really honest with myself without having those pre kind of made ideas or ways of thinking clouding my judgment or my ability to be honest with myself. Yeah, that's such a profound moment where, and it's repeatable. Like, and that's, I don't want to go off on a tangent, but like the, no, the idea, well, you know, the, the idea that you can't measure that, like, that's not something you can measure in a lab. You can't say, well, I have an objective perspective. You know, I have a third person point of view when I'm on a heightened state of awareness that allows me to see my life in the future, in the past. And it also allows me to evaluate decisions that I would have made and the consequences that would have happened later in life. Like, a scientist be like, well, how do you measure that, man? Let's just leave all that out. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Literally. Yeah, literally. I okay. That's nice, George, but we're going to leave all that out. No. <laughs> what I would like to see is like, a, can you put that in a bar graph for me, please? Yeah. <laughs> put it in a pie chart. I want to see the proportion yeah. of your experience yeah. that you that you had third person perspective from. <laughs> can you prove that happened? I don't think you can prove that. Didn't happen then. Didn't happen. Yeah, I know. Totally. <laughs> Uh, I love that. And, you know, I think oh, I can't remember who it was. So a lot of my my I've done a lot of um, reading and I take a lot of my ways of, of seeing the world in perspective. Sorry, in relation to psychedelics from Carl Jung. Beautiful. And yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, Stanislav Grof. And I can't remember. I don't know if it was one of them or someone else, but they talked about how trying to understand the mystical experience mm. from a scientific perspective kind of defeats the whole purpose of it. It kind of like, that's, that's like almost the power of the mystical experience yeah. is the mystical aspect of it. Of not really understanding and kind of having to like make your own understanding. But if you really break that down in like a biological reductionist way, is it really mystical anymore? You know? And so even if we could, even right. if we could measure mystical experience, and like, of course people are trying, would that would that be any would that really be meaningful and i don't yeah. know on some level it may be i mean it may be but i i don't i don't think that you can and i think there's the problem with modern medicine is that they have taken the spirituality or attempted to take the spirituality out of medicine. And when you do that, you take away the real healing. You know, you take away the component that comes with the medicine. Spirituality is a part of medicine. And I, I could see, you know, it seems to me the way they, they, they did that is to create, and I'm sure the road to hell was paved with good intentions, but you know, I, it's, it's a model that allows profit to be made it's a model that allows measurement to happen even though the measurement is easily falsified it still allows for someone to measure something and that's to me it's a problem with the psyche it's a it's it's a really symptom of the sickness and it, it it's a symptom of the sickness that plagues all of us and it's why we are in this situation it's this idea that we need to quantify things like you need to measure it and you know that brings us back to the idea of money and trade and yeah. if you look at the society we live in it's it's just this really sharp scalpel of analysis that has forgotten it's part of the whole and on the topic of yeah. mysticism what another person that i would add to that trio of Stanislav Grof and Carl Jung is Alfred North Whitehead. And he has a quote mm. that says something along the lines of mysticism 
leads us to try to create out of the mystical experience something that will save it or at least save the memory of it. And he the, he ends that quote with mysticism, clarification, action. And that's something that like I, I, I always hold that quote dear because, you know, mysticism often leads us to the inevitability of words. And then we find ourselves in the integration trying to find clarification. And once you have clarification, then you can move forward with the action there. And I do. I, I agree. I, if, I, if I can just fall back for a minute on this idea of the third person, I have a question here that I was that I've been thinking about for some time, and I want to get your opinion. Mm-hmm. Where is it? Here? I guess the question is the concept of the inner observer. Would you would you think that that is the self? When we think of the inner observer, would you consider that to be the self? Hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Hmm. You know, the first thing that comes to my mind is <clears throat> the concept of the soul in the way Ram Dass speaks about it. That, which is kind of, I think, from a Hindu or Buddhist perspective, of we're kind of this soul that reincarnates into like a physical body. And though we take on a personality, though we take on an ego and our physical appearance, are the essence of who we are is not from this world. It's not a material sense. And so when I think of the, what, what you say, the inner observer, um, my view on it is that it's, that it's, it's separate from the physical self, but not separate in like a bad way, just that like we're in, I'm intricately connected with my personality compared to my soul, but at the same time, when this body passes on, the essence of who I am, from a soul perspective, moves on to whatever next cycle I'm in. Not necessarily taking on the the biases, the the personality structures that come with like this as Ramdas calls a meat sack. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great way to put it. You know, I, I, I think similar in that, I think in that heightened state of awareness where you do become the observer, that it's so difficult to put into words because you can yeah. see yourself, you know, you, you, you see and the fact that you can see yourself, I think, I think it it, it disin, it's disingenuous to say that that person is the self because you can see yourself. I would say you are uh, above yourself, or you're mm. you are your eternal being, or you are yeah. the planet seeing yourself. You know, you, you maybe you're seeing the image of yourself, but. You know, it's it's yeah. difficult. It's such it's it's so hard to put into words, but it, it's so fascinating, and, and it's it's an experience that there are no words for. There may be a symbol for it. We mm-hmm. may be able to come up with sort of that yin and yang symbol that's always moving with the polka dot and the paisley, and mm-hmm. you know, or or maybe something to do with those abstract geometrical images that you see in heightened states of awareness. Perhaps yeah. that's the best way to describe it is to show that image, you know, and you can see the relationship, these, these incredible relationships everywhere. And it's like, it's this, 
You know what I mean? Yeah, like... Totally. <laughs> and I, I 100% agree. I, I, it's funny. I don't like using this wording because it sounds ridiculous, but it's like a download. It's an understanding yeah, of course. that yeah. suddenly you have. And there's no, you don't, there's not really even an explanation for how you got to it. I think a lot of the time, truly, like, I, I think we're so good at looking back on it and being like, oh, yeah, this is why. This is why I came to that conclusion. But realistically, you came to it on a whim. And yeah. One one quote that I love is um, like we're just the the universe experiencing itself through the eyes of a person, and so like for me when I think about being in that that third person in that in that that inner witness, when I when I'm able to witness myself my my personality structure is separate through that like through that inner observer, I also start to recognize that other people aren't also who they think they are as Ram Dass puts it and then I start to develop this kind of compassion and love for them as being the exact same as me like we are the same you know even though we might look different act different be different on on the surface like it's so funny inside but that's not really what I mean we're like the exact same and that is that has really helped me develop a compassion and, and 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 empathy for for people who I've really struggled to feel that for in, in my life, both uh, in a, on a personal with like friends and family, and also with strangers. Especially like in my last line of work, like working with the unhealthed population, there's a lot of um, people who hold at times harmful views, and and it's as a result of so many factors. But it can be very difficult to overlook certain things that to to find that deep meaningful connection and i think psychedelics play an instrumental role in my ability to connect with people at a level so humanly basic that everything else just kind of washed away you know it was like in that moment when you're connecting with someone on that kind of soul level nothing else matters other than being completely present with that person you know what i mean i do know what you mean it's beautiful i and I, I think that's what's happening. You know, maybe COVID was the catalyst that aw- began to awaken people. I think on a lot of levels, it was a true gift. And I know that some people may not feel that way. But if you look at this, you know, think of a merry-go-round. that's going super fast and just stops. Everybody starts flying off of it. You know what I mean? Like, whoa! Yeah. yeah. You know? And and for and I think I came from the corporate world. Yeah. And it, it's so toxic sometimes. Like, I in my opinion, the majority of the Fortune 500 companies have gotten so large that they no longer see the people that work for them as people. They just see them as numbers. And when you're forced into this environment where you got to walk through a metal detector to see if you're stealing anything, and then you go in and you're you're faced with your employee number, and there's like a hey, you know, it's highlighted and it has a it has a minus next to your name, and you're forced to look at that every day. Wow. It's just so dehumanizing on some levels. And yeah. that, so even though people are going there and they're still maintaining a form of community and, and engaging with each other, it's like this, it becomes toxic to a level where all of a sudden you're forced into this environment that you hate and you kind of become a container for that environment on some level. Like some that that toxicity pours into you when you go into work and you bring it home and you pour some for your kid and you pour some for your wife and pour a little in the cat's bowl, you know, and it just poisons everything around it. And I think yeah. COVID helped people begin to see that. And they, I, I, for example, and I know many people that have, have just said, you know what? I would rather really struggle with money. I would rather 
you know, not be penniless, but I would rather walk away from this place. Even if I'm making six, six figures, I'd rather walk out of here than continue to do this. I can't yeah. like, it's really killing me and I don't like who I am and I'm, I'm not around people I care about and it's alienating and there's no amount of money that's worth it. And I think when yeah. you get to that point and I think everyone, you know, I got good news and bad news is the good news is not everyone's at that point. The bad news is not everyone's at that point, you know, but you, you get there. And when you get there, it's super scary and you're faced with fear. And then all of a sudden the courage wells up and you do something about it. And then you begin to take your steps towards freedom. And it's, I see it happening around the world. I think it's part of this psychedelic Renaissance. I think it's this thing called awakening. And it's, yeah. if you look at what's happening in France or Pakistan, or sometimes in the middle East or, you know, even the wars that are erupting, I think it's an, a, a war of consciousness. Like we don't want to be part of this hardcore life extracting sort of lifestyle. What do you think? Is that too much? Or what do you think about that? No, I think you're spot on. I really appreciate you sharing that. I can imagine like at, at the risk of, 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 um, of guessing how it felt. I imagine that being in that corporate world and then choosing to quit, especially to come into something like mental health, like, <laughs> I, like I, I don't know how was that like did you find there's a lot of judgment from like your your past friends coworkers, kind of like that world when you kind of like shifted into this kind of work it's interesting it's a lot like when your parents get divorced because mine got divorced too yeah. you don't know how to deal with it and i've got some really close friends that were i've gotten a lot of cool messages along the lines of hey thank you for your principled stand or thank you for planting this seed and but a lot of people they tend to not want to talk to you, not because they don't like you or not because they're they're upset with you, but be because they're afraid. Like they don't, they can't imagine, or maybe they can imagine and it, it bothers them. Like, oh my God, like, you know, what, you have kids, you have bills, you have a mortgage. Like, what are you going to do? You know, and you're, conf you, you have this cloud of what, why me? What am I going to do hanging over you? And you, you think to yourself and you're, you're, completely bombarded with this in the corporate world, <clears throat> you'll never go anywhere and make this kind of money. It's like an abusive relationship of someone's like, yeah, you'll never do better than me. That's kind of yeah. what the corporate world is telling wow. your employees. You'll never yeah. do better than us. You're lucky to have a job. Like that's all wow. bullshit. And yeah. I would, I would, I want everyone to know that. Like if you feel you're in a situation where that kind of messaging is in your mind, I'm not saying that the person who runs your corporation or the manager or, or people in position are saying that to you. But if you feel that message in your heart, like it's being conveyed to you on some level and it's coming from that place. So mm -hmm. you, it's all bullshit. It's conditioning. It's this, it's this, you know, in primary school or public schools, we kind of treat children like Pavlovian dogs. We train them with bells and whistles and an authority figure standing in front of them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you, you got to break that conditioning and it's, yeah. it's hard. Yeah. but it's not, it's, it's just this idea of fear and confronting yeah. fear. Right. I think that when you think about fear, fear is not the absence of, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Anybody mm -hmm. can do that. Courage is doing something in spite of the fear. Yeah. And once you begin doing it, you, you know, you, you realize that fear is afraid of you and you can yeah. blow through it or it still might be challenging, 
but you can stop your heart rate when you're in that condition, if you're aware of it, and you can mm -hmm. become the person that you want to be. You can get across the message that you want to the authority figures. If you're willing to sit with yourself and figure out what is it I'm afraid of? What, yeah. what do I, can I keep doing this? Is it fair to the people that matter? Is it fair to my daughter? Is it fair to my friends? Is it fair to my parents? Is it fair to my wife? Yeah. And if that, if you answer no to any of that, you know, you yeah. really need to start thinking about making a change in your life and it'll be the best change you've ever made. And this idea of, in my opinion, all of a sudden this confidence begins to grow inside of you and this belief that you can become the person you've always wanted to, that you're worthy of actually living the dream, man. You're yeah. worthy of that. Yeah. If you start walking down that road, it'll happen, man. Yeah. I love that so much. <laughs> I just, I just want to sit with that for a second because yeah. that, that really resonated with me. I love what you said about like the courage is not the absence of fear. It is doing something despite the fear. Yes. And, and at least in my experience, I've found that when I sit with that fear and, and I, and I, and I go through it, like I think public speaking is a great point. Yeah. A great example of that yep. is like you do it and then you're so scared and you're like, that's okay. Like, it's okay to be scared. I'm going to do it anyways. And then yeah. you do it and it goes great. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, like it's, 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 you're not actually scared of public speaking. You're like scared of the fear. You're yeah. scared of feeling the fear in the first place, because if you can do something well, despite fear, you're there's nothing to be feared anymore. And, and it comes down to just being scared of the fear. And that's something that has been so hard for me in my yeah. life with, with my anxiety is like, being anxious to do so many things and as i've gotten more confidence in myself and started facing that fear i've started really recognizing like there's nothing to be feared <laughs> even though i still fear all the time yeah, I, I always have fear but yeah. at the same time i simultaneously am scared shitless and not afraid you know what i mean <laughs> yeah i know exactly what you mean and i think a lot of people do one of the tools i use right there is like okay if i don't if i don't do if i don't fight this fight then my kid's going to have to, you know, if yeah. I get up and I go do this thing I hate every day, what am I teaching my kid, man? Like, what am I, what, what kind of a man did my wife marry? If I'm not going to stand up to people, like she deserves better than that. And I'm not gonna let my fear get in the way of that because yeah. that will be something that drives me to drinking and I'll be a worse person. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That, that reminds me, I can, I can remember as being so young, probably in middle school, and which is grade six to, to eight here. Yeah. And, and I remember just thinking like, okay, what is, what are my, what is my parents' life? They wake up at 9am and they go to jobs that they don't like that much. And then they come home and then they do whatever they need to do. And then they get ready to do the same thing tomorrow. And not that, not that I'm judging anyone for wanting to do with their life. But for me, I started thinking, why would I want to get up and do something every day that I don't love doing? Yeah. And and I think it's exactly what you said in terms of like of of the fear and the like of kind of like letting the people down in your life uh, of like I'm not being and it comes back to like not being my authentic self. You know, and something Ram Dass says is like we by doing the work on ourselves we become a vessel for other people to find their own 
enlightenment. It's so beautiful. Right? But how yeah. can how can I be a vessel for someone else to find healing if I am not being my authentic self? Like it has to be truly authentic. And in order to be authentic, you have to do what you love. You have to not be afraid or you have to do things despite being afraid. You know, and I think it's through those actions that we start to inspire other people and create that 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 space where other people can start to look at themselves. And, you know, I think related that as well, bringing it back to when we're talking about when you switch from like the corporate world to mental health and stuff, and you have those friends who are maybe a little more resistant to it. I've had this conversation with my roommate before actually, and how when people can recognize things in themselves that they don't like, and they see that you're actively doing something to work on that, that's that's a scary thing because it means that mm -hmm. they spend time with you, they're naturally going to have to start looking at that in themselves. And I think, at least in my experience, I feel that when I've started doing this work and being more authentic and people don't like that or don't like me, I, I try to, the way I see it is it's like, okay, so they are noticing something in themselves that they're not ready to work on and seeing me doing it is perhaps prematurely forcing them into doing it, you know? And I think on a practical level, perhaps that's one of the reasons why when people start to go through these transformations into mental health or just becoming their authentic self, their friend groups change and the people in their life change drastically because all of a sudden one part of it is people are like, whoa, I don't like, I don't want to do any of that weird. <laughs> so I don't want to talk about my yeah. feelings. And then there's other people who are like, whoa, I like what you're doing. Like, I want to be like that, you know? And then you start the, the, the way that you spend your time with people changes, at least in my experience. Yeah. I prefer to think of premature force as a seed of inspiration, mm. you know, <laughs> like I, because I, I know it like I've I have been on both sides of exactly what you're saying about. And even though I ignored the people that were doing the things I liked or even insulted them, some part of me wanted to be it. And some part of that light was transferred to me, no matter regardless of what I say. And yeah. if you if you know, it, it, it's, and it's becoming honest with that, that allows you to understand what you're doing to other people when you come through the other side. Like, I get it. Like that person's ignoring me, but I reached them on some level. I reached them and I'm hopeful that that little spark, you know, you just blow that little spark into them Yeah. on some level, you know, all of a sudden they may have a random thought on an idle Tuesday at 4 PM and be like, damn it. I don't like this. You know, and that thing grows. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I have, yeah, please. Sorry. Sorry. I've had some really amazing people where I work reach out to me. Some of my best friends in the world, my friend Matt, Evie, and Griggs, and you know, even some of the leadership there have have just, hey, thank you, George. I, I thank you. You know, and I've it, it's opened up so much for me. And to, and to hear that, to hear that word, hey, you know what? It's inspirational, George. And for some of those people to see the pain that I had to go through to get there. It means the world to me to hear people you love go, I got some thinking to do, George. And you know what? I love you, man. Thank you for that. Thank you. You've really made me see things that's possible. And like, like that's worth more than any amount of money. That's worth more than two commas, a three commas, a four commas. To know that you've, you've done something for someone in a, by, by, by leading by example. Like, and I, 
I think that's the true wealth in life. And if you can do that, if you can stack a few of those on top of each other, the world just starts changing the pattern for you. You know, and like you can see you, when you start changing other people's patterns, yeah. man, I get goosebumps. Like that's why yeah. I do it, man. Like I look what I had, did this one thing, man. What and and people, it's not like you're telling people to do stuff. It's like people are going, Hey, I could do that. And you're like, Yeah, you totally can. Oh, maybe you could try these four things. Here's what I did, and you're just beginning to share. Yeah. And all of a sudden, the sharing economy erupts around you, and it's it's it, it provides like a cornucopia of beautiful fruit for everyone to sink their teeth into, right? I love that so much. It's that's so inspiring. And, and I have a question for you. Yeah. So in those moments where someone is resistant to you because of, of them seeing something in you that they want, but aren't ready for at that moment, perhaps oftentimes I've found in my experience, that's met with some sort of negativity. And how do you keep yourself inspired and positive and sure of yourself through those moments? It's really hard. It's hard, especially when you care about people and they they say things to you that they know are going to hurt you. Or, or, But what I have found is that even if it's you or I, the language we use is a reflection of who we are. So when people say things to you, what they're really saying is what they feel about themselves. And so in some ways, like it still makes it hard because instead of that person saying negative things to you, you're watching someone you love say negative things about themselves. And that to me is like, that's heart wrenching. It's like, oh my God, this person's in pain, man. And like, and then at that point in time, as soon as you realize that, like this hurtful statement that comes your way is an admission of pain. Like, I don't know what to say to that, man. Like, you know, it's just like, I just try to, I just want to hug them. You know, yeah. or at that point in time, I, I usually, and it's hard because some of the things they say can be so offensive and, and it's meant to be, it's meant to hurt you. And, you know, but I, I try to, I try to just maybe sit with silence at that point in time or be yeah. like, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way. You know, I, I, I really am. And, uh, I think you're an awesome person and, uh, I guess maybe, I guess maybe we just disagree here. You know, but if you can, if you can keep it there and you can see it that way, I think that the corrosion of that language will, will fall off like rust on you. It still sits on you for a while, but yeah. if you can just begin to see that language as someone who's hurting. And I guess maybe the silver lining there is that you're inspiring them on some level. The fact that you force them to bring up that pain, the fact that they felt comfortable to bring up that pain towards you in a way as a compliment. You know what I mean? Like they said it to you. They've been, probably yeah. been holding that stuff in for a long time, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you yeah. got it out of them. You got it out of them, man. So you don't yeah. pat yourself on the back there. And and it, correct me if I'm wrong, but anytime you've ever said something to someone in a negative way, didn't you feel bad about it later? Like, God damn, I was kind of a dick there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Every time. Yeah, I know. I know. And so will they. And so yeah. will they. And if, and when they're ready, they'll apologize and stuff like that. So just know that that's just a different version of you. Like you said, it's a, it's a mirror. It's a younger version of you. It may be an older version of you. I don't know, but it's just a version of you. And if you can recognize that in the other person, it kind of takes the sting out of it, I guess. That's how I would yeah. look at it. I love that so much. It it actually it reminds me of this example. So one time um, at my, my last position, I was 
um, we, we did room inspections just to help people stay on top of rooms so they yeah. didn't get to, to really, really bad levels. And I remember I came to someone's room, just asked them if they want to do a room inspection. And he just blew up at me immediately, yelling at me like, you fucking asshole. I fucking hate you. Get the fuck out of here. Just like everything. Right. And it's, some, it's someone I had a good relationship with, too. And um, I, I was just like, okay, now's not a good time. No worries. How about tomorrow? And he's like, like yeah whatever just kind of like yelled and then i remember um i he had me walking around the building later and i just happened to walk past him and i just did my thing like i i didn't really um i didn't bring it up again i didn't ignore him but at the same time i didn't i didn't overly put any attention on him and the next day he actually came up to me and was like, Hey man, I'm, I'm really sorry. I was just having a really bad time. Like you're an amazing person. Like you didn't deserve that. Mm-hmm. And I think I had that realization of exactly what you said of being like, Whoa, like this person was just projecting onto me and I didn't respond to it. I didn't take it personally. I just said, this person needs space and that's fine. And I waited. And then mm-hmm. he, that's exactly what happened. He came and he was like, man, I'm sorry. And he felt bad about it. And like that really strengthened the relationship between yeah. us. Right. When, when I feel like at least in that context, when, when someone can like express like unfiltered anger and you can just kind of like not absorb it, but, but contain it. Yeah. And then they recognize that and then acknowledge it to me that is like that is connecting on such a deep human level where everything else fades away of just like man you were there for me and that those kinds of moments and relationships made me so much more effective at my job because when it came down to it when things shit was hitting the wall having that relationship was the difference between being able to contain someone, calm them down or, or help them in ways that other people couldn't because they hadn't taken the time to build that relationship in a way where that person like genuinely trusted you and trusted your opinion and, and and knew that you actually care about them because you had shown that already. Yeah. It speaks volumes of, of someone's attitude towards you. But more than that, it speaks volumes of their thought process. You know, the way people use language with other people is a direct reflection of their inner dialogue. So if someone's yeah. exploding like that, they talk to themselves like that all the time. Yeah. And, you know, imagine if, if you just fictionally think of someone yelling at you like that all the time, like you would, you would want to leave that relationship. You wouldn't want any part of it. So imagine a person that talks to themselves like that all the time. Like that's like, it's in a weird way. It's like this self-hatred and like, that's why they're sick is they have this pattern of language where they have this song on repeat. that's constantly angry and it erodes everything inside of them. And so if everything inside of you is eroded, how can you not erode the relationships outside of you? And it speaks and on another level too. And in a weird way, it's sort of a, an example of schadenfreude in that, you know, when someone's like that, there's a weird sort of feeling that you get going. You can almost take a weird solace in this idea that no one can ever be harder on someone than themselves. And so, 
the fact that that person came and apologized to you meant through that person probably went through a prolonged period of like having to think about how much of an asshole he was to you. And like, the fuck do I I'd probably do that all the time? God damn, I did it again. And I should, I yeah. should apologize to that guy. But then you found the courage to come and do it. Like that's a yeah. whole other thing. A lot of people will have that internal dialogue and they'll be like, I should, I should apologize. But instead of apologizing, they'll come up and give you a Snickers bar or they'll pat you on the back or yeah. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll try and buy you something, which is their form of apologizing without apologizing. And it, it doesn't go all the way, but yeah, it, it's, I love the idea that first off, I'm glad that happened to you, not because it made you feel bad, but because you've had that experience and now you can begin to understand the inner workings of other people's minds. And I think that's essential if you're going to be in mental health care is that you have to understand why you gotta you, you know and that probably comes back to you being a kid and asking why your parents why were they divorced why me you know that question of why me is something yeah. that stays with you and it works well when you're trying to help other people erupt out of this pattern that they're already in but yeah, yeah it's a fascinating concept man i i'm stoked to talk about it it's it's fun to me i i know because i've been there and i'm sure you've been there too totally yeah no it's this is that is something that I specifically in terms of, of, of thinking about like this, the context of like people exploding on you and how you take that in. Like that is such a core part of working in like the social services yeah. industry because it's, it's, it happens every day and it leads to burnout so quickly because, mm -hmm. because you take it personally. And I took it yeah, so personally in the beginning. And at times, you know, as I was reaching being burnt out and compassion fatigue, there was, I would start taking it personally again, even though I'd done all this work to not take it personally. And I think Ram Dass particularly, and what he, what he talked about, which I already mentioned about, about we help people by becoming a vessel for their own healing, because to me, what that means is we're not doing anything. I'm not trying to heal anyone. All I'm doing is being my authentic self and that creates yeah. a space, right? But when I had the mindset of like, I want to help somebody, that's where issues came into play. That's where compassion fatigue mm -hmm. comes from. That's where burnout comes from because it, it doesn't work that way. People heal when they're ready. And if you, if for me, when I based my value and my effectiveness on the results of other people, especially in that context, I was bound for failure because true, true wins are really rare. They're, they're unfortunately really rare in, the, in that field. And so I feel like that's one of the reasons why compassion fatigue is so burnt is, is so prevalent in that field or, or people become numb. Mm -hmm. That is so common too, because there's, there's so much pain and suffering and you can't do anything about it. And so you just shut yourself down. And I mean, that's a whole nother topic, but, but that's also unfortunately really prevalent in, in the healers that I have seen in, in the social services field. Yeah. And I think that's a process that happens throughout humanity is that we shut ourselves off to the pain out of necessity like you know okay i can't i can't feel this and continue to go on so if i want to go on then i have to stop making a big deal out of this big deal and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love it you know and it, I, i've had multiple discussions with people that that you know have much more authority than me and we sit down and we talk about <clears throat> things and i i try to explain to them like look 
in my opinion, what you do sometimes, you do all the time. And if you treat all of these people here in this way, you can treat your family that way. You're really like, I, I remember having a conversation with this guy who was really good with his language, mm -hmm. but he used it as a tool to sort of be really dishonest. And, you know, I, I, I noticed that I'm like, oh yeah, I used to do that too. But look, yeah. Congratulations on tricking all these people to think something. Congratulations. That's super yeah. awesome. You yeah. know what? You're so good at it. You don't even realize you do it. You do it to your wife. You do it to your kid. It's probably why you're having problems at home, man, is because you implement the exact same system here that you do at home. And you can't help it. Like if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become an expert at it. Yep. And if your job is being a professional, you know, bullshitter or, or a liar, or if your job is to seek production at any cost, well, then you begin seeing this world. You train yourself to see the world in a certain way. And that's how you see the world. But by, by being numb, you also take away all the pleasure that can come from that sensation of, of, of seeing things. And it's, 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 it's an epidemic that we're in. And I, I think that it's coming to a different way. I, I think psychedelics is something that helps people see that, you know, you had mentioned earlier in the podcast that some, some, a relationship between psychedelics and cognition and what, what's going on there. Mm, great question. So the research in our lab is looking at, and when I say, maybe I'll, let me define yeah, cognition really quickly. Please. So in more in the context of, of how our lab studies, it is what's called executive functionings. Are, are you, um, okay. Maybe flesh that out for everybody. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so the idea of executive functioning, broadly speaking, is, is our ability to make decisions, to to plan, to to switch between tasks, to, to otherwise known as like metacognition, and you know we can really get into the semantics, but think of it as higher level thinking, the the really complex cogn cognition that we have, and and the idea behind it, it, it kind of aligns with the idea of how psychedelics improve plasticity right mm -hmm. neuroplasticity which give us this little ability to change the way we, we we are in the world and but what does that mean we talk about it so much for mental health right it changes the way that i relate to other people it changes the way that i the behaviors i take but we don't talk about like can psychedelics improve your decision making can it actually make you quicker at responding to things? So we're talking about the structure of the brain itself and how that relates into effective goal-directed behavior. And what we're starting to see actually is that obviously acutely when you, when you take a psychedelic, no, no, your working memory and your ability to think essentially hold things in your mind, it, it plummets, which makes sense. Your ability to decision-make, it's not any better to be honest in the context of how it's measured, I should say, mm -hmm. but longer term, we see actually some improvements in cognition. It was just a scoping review, which is essentially just going through the literature. It's not even a systematic review or meta-analysis. It's just, it's qualitatively essentially looking at some of the data and seeing if there was results one way or another. And we do start to see actually some benefits to cognition from psilocybin specifically in the long term which is amazing. And, and maybe some of the, the practical applications of that is to so have a traumatic brain injury. Maybe you're riding a bike, you fall off, hit your head and like you, your memory goes away a little bit. You can't think as clearly your ability to hold things in your mind isn't as good. You just aren't making as good decisions. Well, maybe 
psilocybin or other psychedelics can actually be used to help regenerate your ability to function, help your most basic cognitive functions work at a higher level again. That's the idea behind it specifically. And I think that in particular, when it comes to traumatic brain injury, it's concussions. It's such Mm -hmm. a ubiquitous thing. Like as more and more research comes out about concussions, they're so easy to get. And especially in sports, like concussions are everywhere all the time, realistically. And some of the research is showing is as little as one concussion can cause permanent damage to your brain structures and thus your ability to effectively produce goal-directed behavior. And so that is the the hope for psychedelics in, in one way in, in neuropsychology and neurology is to be able to use them for their physiological effects in the brain in order to boost our most basic cognitive functioning. Yeah, it's brilliant. You know, I recently... What when you talk about the scoping and the the study that you're doing and the research on that study, is that based on like neural feedback or is there neural imaging there or or what mm-hmm. is that what does that study look like? I should preface by saying it's not my research project. It's um, two other people in the labs. Um, uh, Bailey, I, I don't know their last names. It's Bailey and Justin in my lab at the Cortex Lab. They're amazing researchers. They're actually, they just started this new research. It's like the largest study in the world trying to get like attitudes and, and psychedelic behaviors. Um, but it's likely what it is that they're measuring, if I understand your question correctly. So correct me if I'm wrong, but it's doing basic cognitive tasks. So Actually, sorry, can you repeat your question again? I kind of lost it. Yeah, I was just wor- I was just wondering, when looking at the study, were they basing their information off mm. of like neural feedback or neural imaging? But it sounds to me like they were yeah. basing it off actual, um, you know, cognitive abilities and tasks. Yeah, that's my understanding of it. Yeah. Um, and more, and that's our lab is yeah, like better. Neuro- neurocognitive psych, really. Like we do a lot of cognitive testing, just doing like computer tasks. And so I... Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that's the kind of studies that they're looking at. I actually don't know for sure. Um, I think they're publishing it or it has been published, but yeah, that, that's a, that would be really cool though, looking at brain imaging and neurofeedback and stuff. Sometimes I think that the results, the way we measure results should be in the joyous tears of the family members, because those are the best people that know, you know what I mean? Like when you see family members crying, like my husband, my daughter's better, you know, like, okay, yeah. it worked. like, look, they, the person that loves them the most is telling you they're better. Like, okay, we don't need the imaging. We got it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a great idea. You know, <laughs> in my, in my new job in hospice, one of the, best indicators we use to determine the effectiveness of our services is whether or not people tell us them and their families tell us if our services were effective <laughs> what a novel were idea. you happier yeah like <laughs> at the end of the day with anything in life is isn't the subjective experience of the experience the most important thing about any experience <laughs> yeah 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 it's so it's so true it's and it's it's this idea of of Sometimes I think the idea of um, specialization, you know, like the left hand has no idea what the right hand's doing is, has gotten away from us in, in some ways. But yeah, I, I, I saw an, an interesting parallel study where uh, Nick Murray, who's got a company called Wake, 
has recently done partnered with ESPN and they took these people. Uh, I think Ryan, I think, I'm not sure if his name is Ryan, but his last name is Kote. He was like an enforcer for hockey up in Canada and a bunch of people that played in the NFL. And they took them down to this retreat in Jamaica where they had multiple sessions of psilocybin and, you know, they they did then hook them up to some newer technology like this kernel brain imaging machine and they did some neurofeedback and they were able to show, which science I'm sure loves, is this new centers, these new connections, these sort of new brain waves that are beginning to show up in these areas that before didn't have a whole lot of action. And, mm. you know, along with that, they also can hear the people no longer beginning to slur their words so that there's wow. there's also like real tangible effects happening in conjunction with the science that makes both sides happy. And so I, I would imagine that that Bailey and what was the other person's name? Justin. And Justin. Bailey and Justin, you're welcome to come on this show. We should, we'll, I'll try to put all your research in the show notes down there. Thank you for doing what you guys are doing. You sound like amazing people. I'd love to talk to you. And, you know, I, I would imagine that their research is, is somewhere along that lines. And I think it's this kind of research like Bailey and Justin are doing that is going to drive mental health care in the future. It's it's a really profound. I'm really excited for it. Yeah, me too. You know, we in the lab, um, as more and more like psilocybin and psychedelic research is being picked up by the members and stuff, we've been as a lab starting to educate yeah. ourselves on a unified idea of how we want psychedelics to, or how we see psychedelics being implemented into our work and more broadly society. And we have such a beautiful mix of opinions and, and viewpoints based on our backgrounds. Um, a lot of the lab are clinical neuropsychologists or clinical neuropsychologists in training where I'm more um, going to like the, a little bit less away from the, the clinical neuropsych, a little more into just like the counseling side of things. And we sure. have other people who are from other research-based specialties and we all bring our own viewpoints and worldviews into it and it just helps us create this really holistic amazing and i think it's a great balance between the mystical unexplained things and then the science of things and i think we're doing the lab is doing a great job of of balancing those two and and bringing bringing the science to it but also leaving room for there to be a little bit of like unexplained stuff yeah it sounds to me like you're redefining medicine or redefining healing in a way and when mm -hmm. i think about you know if we just stay with the idea of <clears throat> redefining what things look like, whether it's words or experiences, and we think about the relationship between words and actions, you know, healing sounds a lot like optimization to me. But there's a little bit of a difference there. You know, on some level, like healing has like a negative stereotype to it, like, oh, you were injured, so you now you have to be healed. But what if you're just being optimized? You know, like, mm. isn't, isn't optimization just optimization has a lot of levels to it. Maybe you're optimizing your cognitive ability, or maybe mm -hmm. you're optimizing the, the emotional, your EQ, you know what I mean? And I, mm -hmm. I think that that's, that goes a long way of taking the stigma out of disease. And I think that's a huge part of it because people kind of become that stigma when they're labeled with something, but if they're not healing, if they're just optimizing, if you have an optimization center versus a treatment center. You know, yep. now all of a sudden you're attracting people in there for different things. And when people come in, they don't judge other people for like, oh, well, that guy, you know, he's one of those guys. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that idea. You know, I've, I've thought about this before, actually, in terms of like, because I think there's a huge, God, I don't want to, I, I was going to say market, but I think demand for, for people who 
are okay, but yeah. are wanting to just optimize themselves. You know, but I do think there are people out there who who are looking for healing as well. Sure. Like I think I think that it is also important to acknowledge that there are some there Agreed. there are a lot of people who really are hurt. And like at least I come from my perspective of like it's okay to be hurt. Like I'm hurt. Like I've been so hurt and I wasn't I was maybe ashamed in the beginning, but I'm not ashamed to say that anymore. And like at times what I've been looking for is healing, not optimization. Yeah. But yeah. I think I definitely think optimization is as equally important and needed because at at the moment sometimes I see the psychedelic medical side of things being taken towards like treatment resistant depression you know PTSD and there's no space for people who want to use it to just break toxic masculinity mm -hmm. but like that's that's valuable too why are we not why am I not allowed to use psychedelics to to help with my toxic masculinity and toxic ways of being in the world, but other people are allowed to use it for things that the medical system has considered to be worthy or hurtful enough. And I'm not trying to compare PTSD to toxic masculinity at all, but I think it's a gross example of how psychedelics are being siloed to only being able to be used for certain people. And I think it's important to, to acknowledge exactly like what you're saying, the, the spectrum of reasons yeah, that yeah. psychedelics can be used for. It's a very astute point, and it's I can tell that you spend a lot of time because it. I'm beginning to see new terms like traumadelics being put out there, you know, because mm -hmm. there's so much emphasis on trauma and healing. Yeah. And, and I agree with you. People need to be healed, and they should be healed. And I'm so glad that there's there's coaches and professionals, and there's a lot of people out there. But I do see this new branch emerging. In fact, I talked to a, a friend of mine, Jason Sheffield, who uh, used to have he used he's got a few companies. One of them is Experience Integration. But his new company is called The Rooted Rebellion, and he teaches a class on masculinity using psychedelics. Wow. And it's so funny that we're talking about it because he he gets into this. He comes from a, a, a really hardcore Christian background when he was much younger. And he found in that background that he was presented with this masculinity that wasn't something that he was comfortable with. And so now he takes people that have had different sort of things happen to them or that maybe need some help in their way. And, and he steers clear of, you know, people that need trauma or people that need real healing. He obviously pushes those to people that have that modality or have that yeah. background or a psychologist or a doctor, or, you know, he pushes the people that need that in that direction. But the, there's a lot of people that come to him that need some direction and yeah. that maybe they've been a man their whole life, but they, they haven't really, felt as if they're their authentic self and he's got this yeah. whole course that he's developed like and just talking to the guy i'm like man i should be spending more time with this guy yeah. you know what i mean <laughs> more manly than me you know <laughs> yeah yeah i love that and i what i love about that point is it starts to break down these ideas like what is a man yeah totally like, is it a behavior? Is it a feeling? Is it both? Is it neither? I know in my life that's something that is really as i started to break down my toxic masculinity i started within myself being like but this is what I've associated with being a man my whole life. So like, what yeah. does it mean to be a man? And like, what does it mean to even have a gender? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it? And when, when we, when I think about the concept of the soul, like we talked about earlier, the soul is genderless. It's just a, an essence of consciousness. And so if I'm identified with my soul, I, I don't feel identified with a gender. And how does that translate into the way that I, that I, 
communicate and, and and talk with people in a day-to-day basis who are identified with their their body and and thus their gender and it sometimes i feel like there's um not a disconnect but um i feel a, a overemphasis on on gender when i'm identified with my soul because it it's like a concept that I don't feel but then when I become more identified with like my egoic self I'm like oh well now I can feel myself identifying with my physical features my meat sack (laughs) yeah you know what I mean I do Hmm. yeah I think that's a big problem I think that uh you know we are we're subject to the judgment of others whether we like it or not yeah and in order to in order to to achieve the structure of this society has been set up in a way where and and maybe all societies like judgment matters you may not agree with it but there's some things that you run into that are you can change your perception about them you can change how you feel about them but you can't really change how other people feel about them and those affect us in ways that are sometimes unfair and they're wrong but there's really nothing you can do i mean you could be around you can select your friends and be around like-minded people but yeah, it is tricky. And I think part of the integration process is is coming to the conclusion that like, hey, I'm okay with what those people judge about me. Man. They, they may think I'm a total freak yeah. and they may not like me, but I'm, I'm cool with that. I, in some ways, I could probably see why they think that, you know? And yeah. I think that that's the mark of a, a, a well-rounded person is understanding yeah. that they're going to judge you. You may not like their judgment, but maybe you can empathize where they're coming from. And then you can begin thinking about why they think that. And then it becomes an exercise and in cognition and wow and sometimes sometimes like the the greatest ideas you have come from analyzing the judgments of others you know and sometimes Mm -hmm. that helps you solve problems and if you see it as a gift that way it's it's pretty amazing to think about yeah yeah i love that and for me i think too like as i become more comfortable being my like authentic self i quote i find that the judgments bother me less because Mm -hmm. I'm, I feel happy. I feel proud. I feel at the same time, interestingly feel like it just feels right that I'm doing what feels right to me. And, and I become more, for lack of better words, certain with the stuff I'm doing. I, I, I less often stop and think, am I doing the right thing? It's, It's, it, for me, becomes more often this intuitive feeling of I am doing the right thing. And like, I will take whatever and it comes back to courage. Like I'll take whatever, yeah. whatever's coming my way by doing what it feels right to me. You know, and you just take it, you just take it in stride. <laughs> yeah. I heard a great quote that was like, you know, nothing hits harder than life. Life will hit you and it'll hold you to the ground if you let it. But in life, it's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and get up and keep moving forward. You got to take the Love hits. It. You got to take the hits and you got to be not afraid to face them. Or if you are afraid to face them, face them anyway. And the more hits you take, the tougher you get and the more you're able to walk through that storm. You know, I heard another great quote where they were talking about the difference between Buffalo and cattle. And the difference is that when Buffalo see a storm coming, they run through it or cattle, (laughs) you know, like when the storm's coming, you run through it. Yeah. Cattle would like, they'll either sit and hunker down or they'll run away from it. And you're, you know, if you're constantly running from that storm, you know, you're, you're going to die of exhaustion. You're going to die of something because you're not running through it. Like that's a sign to, 
to run through it, you know, and I, yeah. it's interesting to think about, you know, if, if I, if I shift gears and I think about this new position you've taken, congratulations, by the way, on Thank the new you, job, appreciate it. Uh, you know, I recently read an article in Spanner magazine where they're using five MEO DMT to treat um, neurodegenerative diseases. Have you heard about that? I haven't actually. It's fascinating. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the article. Um, it was a, uh, it was a really, and it's anecdotal. Like I, I haven't really researched it. I, I don't, I've spoken to the guy a little bit, but I, I, I don't have the documentation in front of me. So I'll just say, of course. It, it's that. Yep. but the story is beautifully written and it talks about a gentleman who had a really great relationship with his father. They would go, they would go to the beach, they would travel, they would play guitar together. And as his father grew older, you know, all of a sudden the signs of dementia began to set in and it got to a point where the, he went to see the doctor and the doctor says, you know, look, your father probably has six more months before he really needs to go to a home. He's going to forget who you are. It's going to be very, very difficult. So I would recommend that you spend these next six months with as much love and capacity as you possibly have. And they tried all these different treatments. They tried all the drugs. They tried the layering the SSRIs and all these things and nothing worked. And so he had spoken to a bunch of professionals about, hey, I've seen some evidence that says certain psychedelics can help with cognition. Would you guys be willing to work with me on a study here? And so they did sort of a, you know, a, a informal sort of, you know, preparation and they used five MEO DMT in an inhaler over the course of six months. And the way the story goes is that they started using it twice a day and they didn't see a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of, of benefits. But after about a month, you know, they started noticing small things. And then the crux of the story is on like month three and a half, the son came home and he heard like, it's important to note that by this stage, the father was, you know, he, he would be around the house, kind of shuffling around the house, maybe on the couch or in his bedroom. And he, he, he was no longer doing any activities. Mm -hmm. So after the course of 5-MeO-DMT, about month three, the son comes home and he hears this faint sound of a guitar in the back of the house. And he goes back there and his dad's playing guitar. And he's like, dad, what are you doing? And he's like, you know, it's weird. It's like I've been in this fog and I haven't been playing guitar at all, man. I just I just felt like playing. So I just came in here. Wow. And the story goes on to talk about how all of a sudden he got his license back. He started traveling. And they're really doing a lot of research because the, the only factor that changed was the introduction of 5-MeO-DMT. And I think if you look at what Beckley's doing right now with a 5-MeO-DMT inhaler, Mm -hmm. they're saying some things what they're using it for. But I think in my opinion, I don't know that I'm just throwing this other speculation. It seems to me that they are looking at that in a way that could be the next wave for, for neurodegenerative diseases. There's also a company wow. called um, um, April 21st with, uh, with Yahim Fieber. <clears throat> Excuse me if I pronounce that wrong, Yahim. But he has been looking into using next generation psychedelics for neurodegenerative diseases. And I'm curious, like, I think that that could be something that happens in your field or at least in the people you're caring for really quick. I, what's your opinion on that? What do you think about that? That's such a good question. I, I, I love that story. Thank you for sharing it. <laughs> yeah. That, so in the context of hospice, so th the idea of hospice is that you're no longer seeking treatment. It's, it's, 
it's you're essentially like ready to die and you want to make your life as pleasurable as possible until you pass. Yes, we do get some some dementia patients. And I should say I'm not an expert on the company yet. I'm still new or hospice in general, but this is my understanding. And I think the effectiveness of of 5-MODMT for dementia, for example, would be a little bit more upstream. Right. So it, before hospice, but yeah. absolutely yes. Like, especially as like, you know, I'm not a medical professional, but perhaps maybe an early, a more early treatment for it, or perhaps preventative. Like to be maybe, honest, yeah, absolutely. A lot of the things about neurodegenerative diseases is you don't notice it until there's a lot of damage, and so what's the best way to stop something from happening is to prevent it from happening. And so I could really see that coming into play with at-risk people or, you know, I, I try to be hesitant about being like psychedelics cures all because <laughs> I don't believe that. But, but in the places where it could help a lot, I mean, dementia is probably one of the worst things you can get on a family, on, on the, the system, because watching someone you love essentially whittle away into a non-functioning human being is horrible. And that's not to downplay how horrible other things are, but right. it's particularly hard to watch, I think. And so the way I see it at least is like, like it's already one of the worst things that can happen. So like anything bad that can happen from taking psychedelic can't be any worse than that. You know, and when it comes to, a palliative approach, which is just the idea of, of, to my understanding, a palliative approach is just the acceptance of a, of a life limiting disease and containing it rather than aggressively fighting back against it. That's not to say you can't treat during palliative, but that's yeah. the idea behind it is, is helping people live their life to the fullest. And so just under that umbrella of helping people live life to the fullest, psychedelics perfectly make sense to fit in there. Because when it comes to palliative and hospice approaches, like for example, in hospice and oftentimes palliative, like they, they give a lot of um, opioids, hmm. but that's because addiction issue is not a worry because people are already dying and are wanting comfort care. And so if one of the biggest barriers against psychedelic use right now is the lack of research and understanding of the potential downsides of it well if the general approach in palliative and hospice is already it doesn't really matter about the negative side effects because we care about comfort yeah. then then why are we not starting to use psychedelics more in that field i mean that's more rhetorical sure. obviously but the, the you know the general idea behind it is like maybe that's something exactly what you're talking about we should be exploring a little bit more yeah, I think there's a lot of research that talks about people that are in that particular situation using psychedelics and finding comfort, you know, instead yeah. of fear, overcoming a little bit of fear and helping them, you know, with understanding about letting go. And and yeah. I'm sure that that's definitely a very personal decision that anybody would want to do. But if anybody wanted to do it, I think that they should they should be welcome to it. I've read some really interesting stories where you know, people didn't want to have their family come around because of the way they were, because they didn't want people to see them in that way. And after taking psychedelics, they did like a 180 and they became conscious of what's happening to them. And they found a way to make peace with it. And in some ways, even embrace it. And we're like, 
you know what? I get it. I want to see my family now, you know, and I want to, there's some things I want to say, you know, yeah. <laughs> and like, yeah, it really helped help them see that this thing that ha was happening to them, you know, maybe it's not the entire tr tragedy that they think it is. Maybe it's something else. And maybe in this particular state, they have an opportunity instead of they're losing everything. Maybe this is an opportunity that they can really use to, to finish things off. You know, I, I heard a story about, um, about, I was talking to Susan Gunnar, who's a, she's got a really great podcast. Maybe it's Susan Gunnar, I think is her name. And she's, she's incredible. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the links to her podcast. Mm -hmm. She has so much cool stuff. And she was telling me about her mentor and her mentor was someone that was the way she introduced herself was, Oh, I'm an event planner. And when she said, well, what kind of events do you do? She goes, well, into life kind of threw her back a little bit like, wow, that's an interesting concept to think about yourself and as an, as an event planner. And one of the stories she told her is that <clears throat> a lot of the times the people she's with don't have a lot of family. And so she'll spend like the last day with them, you know, like the, sometimes the last hour and like the last 10 minutes. She says, you know, way too many people in the last 10 minutes that she's been with, like she'll be holding their hand and she'll just see what she described as the look of unrealized dreams as they take their last breath. And, you know, she was also someone who is a big proponent of using psychedelics towards the end of life. And yeah. she had been with people that have and have. And in, 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 her, in her story, she had said that the people that did use them, a lot, a lot less of them had the unrealized dreams of a lifetime in their last moments of life. And I think if you could provide that for somebody, that might be the greatest gift that you could give to them is to make peace with this unrealistic expectation of unrealized dreams. You know, it's pretty powerful yeah. to think about. Yeah, I love that. And you know, that personally, that's where I see yeah. psychedelics being so effective in their life care. Yeah. Um, and that's actually something that like I'm we're I'm hoping to propose to like my bosses that we can try and implement in like uh, randomized control trials or something in our hospice. It, it, you know, yeah, it's it, it's complicated <laughs> in a lot of ways, and sure. we're a long ways out from getting there. But my hope would be that psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, or even just like more of a spiritual based psychedelic experience with maybe right. like a doula or some sort of spiritual practitioner, that could be just like a a normal part of hospice care. So in the same way that you can get opioids for pain, you can get psychedelics to help with your end of life anxiety for any reason you want. Like, and I think when it comes to end of life and people start to come to terms with that, they're more willing to try things yeah. to see the world in different ways. And I think that's a perfect way to start introducing psychedelics into the mainstream. Because if you think about end of life and all the people that are related to that end of life, seeing how psychedelics can drastically improve someone's life in, in that time, I think that is like so important in the last, the last little bit of life and people see the impact it can make in the most critical time. Maybe we'll start to see a culture shift of like, maybe there's something here and like, wouldn't it be nice to have that feeling before I'm just about to die, you know, so that I can live my life authentically earlier you know i think that the hope would be that we don't need to take psychedelics to come to terms with our own death right my my hope at least at the end of life like my hope is that we can we can 
get out of this death phobic society mm. maybe with the help of psychedelics yeah face our mortality from a younger age so that when it comes to that time we don't have that moment of unfulfilled dreams of regrets it's like no like i knew i was going to die one day so i live my life authentically so that when i got to this moment mm. i could have a, a sense of peace without the need of a substance to 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 guide me there it's really beautiful said. Thank, thank you for sharing that. It, it makes me think back to the earlier part of our conversation where both of us have used psychedelics and we did, we did find the courage to try and at least pursue the dreams that we have. So in some ways, what you're speaking about is, is being put into action right now. And people can do that. They, they, they can save themselves that last few moments. And, you know, another aspect I think about if there are people that elect to to use psychedelics to cope with an end of life strat or as an end of life strategy, imagine a, a young girl or a young grandson or a granddaughter seeing the life return to their grandparents for a few moments, and how much that that grandchild will change the world as the last breath of of hope or the last breath of life is transferred from them to their grandkids. Like when kids see yeah. miracles, all of a sudden they can perform miracles. And I, I think yeah. that that's the process that's happening. It's this process of waking up, whether it's your grandfather that's dying in a hospice care or whether it's your father who's dying at a job or your mother who's dying in a relationship. Like the truth is maybe we're, we're dying all the time and we, we have this opportunity to, to live and not enough of us are taking it, but I, I hope that we do all of us begin to take that plunge. It's, it's so worth it. Yeah. That gave me goosebumps. I love it. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I love talking to you, man. Thank you for this. It's, it's been really fun. Yeah. Thank you too. This, I love this more than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should have more conversations. I, um, as, as we're kind of coming up on towards the end here, though, I and mean, like, wh what do you have coming up and where can people find you and what are you excited about? Yeah, so we're still in such an early stages of our process. Um, we're actually working on a podcast ourselves. Yeah, um, you'd be I epic know, right? at it. You'd be so yeah. good at it. Thank you. And we'd love to have you on. Uh, Anytime. Because we want to have a similar vibe that you got going on here. Um, with with uh, a little in the beginning, it's going to be a little more focused on psychedelics and like the legality issues and yeah. what they are. And we're, we're going to be very focused with, in like British Columbia in terms of like the context. But then we want to start branching out and having like spiritual conversations and yeah. getting into it. Uh, but we actually just recently um, came to a name and we're the Radiant Roots Healing Collective. I love it. Thank you. So the website uh, that I gave you, we have we don't have a domain name yet. We haven't built it for the new website. So that's all up and coming. But for now, you, I can be reached by my, the website link that I saw you put in the description. It's just a basic website of who I am. There's some information about psychedelic therapy and stuff on there that I think is amazing for people who want to get a sense of what it's like. But that's pretty much it for now. I, I There's lots of stuff in the making, but it's it's going to be a few months before, before anything um really tangible is ready to be released. Yeah, I'm so excited. You, you have such an incredible outlook on life and such a warm energy that comes from you. And I, I can only imagine the people you're surrounded by share that and can't wait to, hopefully I'll get to be on the podcast. I can't wait to meet the team on the podcast. And if I can in any way, shape or form help in any way, please don't hesitate to ask, man. I, I would love to be part of, of what you guys are building, man. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. I'll definitely be reaching out. Of course. We'll hang on for one second. But ladies and gentlemen, I want to say thank you to everybody for listening to this. It's been an amazing conversation. Go down to the show notes. Check out what Nin's got going on. Um, reach out to me at the same places as always. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you're having a beautiful day. And that's all we got. Have a great weekend. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.